Programming note. This is a standalone episode of the suffering of the Allied troops on Luzon between the first and second battles of Bataan. That suffering deserves greater explanation to show what these men went through even before the Bataan Death March. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 184, Starvation is More Than Just Hunger. To type on a keyboard, the men of MacArthur suffered from starvation, is easy enough, as it is to read it. But since early January, the men of Bataan had had no more than 2,000 calories each day, but were still expected to fight, and all that entails— running, shooting, hand-to-hand combat, along with the ever-presence of fear and stress. And though it's not clear when they realized the food shortage would be their downfall, they quickly figured out it was because MacArthur had made the mistake of not bringing tons of rice, millions of bushels of rice, from Manila during the retreat. And anger at one's commander does not make the experience any easier to bear. After all, it was Napoleon but many other commanders had said as much over the centuries that armies live or march on their stomach. Making things worse, the hunger, the hopelessness, the anger at their commander, MacArthur would get word to his men that help is on the way from the United States. Thousands of troops and hundreds of planes are being dispatched. The exact time of arrival of reinforcements is unknown, as they will have to fight their way through Japanese attempts against them. Whether this statement was to buck up his men, or he truly believed this from the messages from Washington, once the men realized that nothing was getting through, it made them that much more bitter, and not towards the Japanese. As February faded away, like the men's stomach, strength, and morale, command tried to remedy this by serving their men carabao, Philippine water buffalo. However, these animals, in trying to beat the heat, would wallow in swamp water, so the procedure was to shoot them, cut up the meat, and soak it in salt water overnight. This made it chewable and palatable, barely. No surprise, within a few weeks, all the carabao in southern Bataan were gone, in all about 2,800 animals. And as covered on the last regular episode, the next step was to eat the horses of the 26th Cavalry. When they were gone, the men started hunting again, this time for wild pigs, lizards, and giant snakes. One veterinarian officer took it another step by hunting and preparing crows. He said it wasn't bad, but few were convinced. During all this, the men had fished in the many rivers. I used the verb to fish, but as they were using explosives, it wasn't quite the same thing as back home. Either way, all these, including monkeys shot out of trees, went into the collective pot. Desperation drove some of the men to go out in boats and fish, the traditional way, in Manila Bay. That is, until they were strafed and bombed by Japanese planes. The men had to leave, but at least a few now-floating fish were picked up. During February, the mango trees, specifically the fruit hanging from them, were picked, but by month's end, the fruit had gone the way of the carabao. And emulating those creatures, soon the men were trying to eat the grass. When the men were given their meals, 
Most of them, if not all, had worms or weevils in them, but one army doctor ate them as well. This was possible as long as he focused on the word sustenance and not food. It wasn't too long after Homa's pullback that the Filipino and Americans were thinking of food constantly, and with no fighting going on, they only had more time to think of their empty stomachs. Hunger was their constant companion. But hunger was only phase one. Then came starvation and malnutrition. One report tried to explain the effects on the men as the weeks passed by. Quote, In the morning before chow, one's legs feel watery and, at intervals, pump with pains that swell and go away again. If you move too rapidly, there is a hint of vertigo. The heart pumps like a tractor engine bogged in a swamp. These not-too-serious discomforts disappear immediately upon eating. For perhaps an hour, one feels quite normal. Then, lassitude. Between noontime and one o'clock is the worst for me. Seems as though I cannot sit straight, but must hump over. The great irony is that war, for the most part, is a young man's game. However, his metabolism is still intense. So the starvation process was speeded up by the very age of the soldiers. The army doctors were sending all kinds of reports to General Wainwright, and he did the best he could, sending what little there was on Corregidor. It was never enough, and the older men on the island were now suffering just as badly. The army doctors simply watched the men waste away, and because of their knowledge, they knew what was going on inside the men's bodies. There just wasn't anything they could do about it. First, the men burned up their reserves of body fat. Not that they had much to begin with, being 20-something-year-olds. Next, as they were also not replenishing basic nutrients, their strength, on a very basic level, began to disappear. By mid-March, long-range patrols had to be canceled. The men simply could not go on for that long. Then it got to the point where an increasing number could not even climb out of their foxholes or raise their rifle to shoot. For those that could still walk, the doctors noticed that the men, some of them only 18 years old, started walking like men in their 80s, a feeble gait and shuffling with head bowed. Their skin was already mottled and hanging from their bones. Their eyes seemed to extend further and further from their heads each day. All this was mixed in with the feeling of being on pins and needles, swelling limbs, bleeding gums, loss of body heat, and shaking hands that made using a rifle impossible. Then the men began to complain of not being able to see as well as they had. Soon many could not see out far in front of them. This struck at the very nature of combat, certainly of holding off the enemy whenever they returned. As bad as the effects were on the men's body, it didn't take long for them to sink in terms of cognitive abilities. Whether it was short-term memory or their ability to remember why they were there, concentration soon became impossible. This was followed by the soldiers only being able to think about their next meal. They became obsessed with it, talked solely about it and what they would be given next. The next phase was predictable enough. Soon command was told that some supply officers were feeding themselves more than the men, more than the officers. To wit, this was sent to all commands. Quote, 
it has come to the attention of this headquarters that organizations, individual officers, and men are looting supply dumps, hijacking food trucks, including those headed for the front, and hoarding supplies. Anyone caught doing this will either be shot or court-martialed. But none, not even those stealing extra supplies, could escape what was happening to everyone, diarrhea or dysentery. They were already too far gone. If they had not suffered, then that would have been the proof that they were hoarding. As the recently arrived Japanese were finding out, the Philippines was one of the most malaria-infested places in all of Asia, thanks to all the rivers and streams with the corresponding mosquitoes. As such, their supply, along with the allies of quinine, which prevented and cured malaria, had almost run out. For the defenders, in late February, the doctors were dealing with 300 new cases every day, then 500 new daily cases, and then 1,000 a day. And yet, some of the Allies, whether naive or desperate, would keep an eye out on the southern shore. Surely, supplies and reinforcements were coming from Australia. But Luzon and her other Philippine sister islands had already been cut off from the south by the Japanese. Simply, Wainwright's command was alone and expendable, of which he knew this. So, it seemed relatively easy to accept when he was told that six of the last eight supply ships had been sunk or captured by the enemy. And all the blame and anger was pointed at MacArthur, not Wainwright. To his men, they just knew that MacArthur was eating well and was safe from the bombing by the tunnels on Corregidor, which was not completely accurate. Yes, he knew that supplies would not be getting through, Marshall had told him as such. Still, Washington wanted Bataan to hold out. Why make it easier for the enemy to close up shop here to just be free to hit another area? So the men were to be sacrificed without being told they were going to be sacrificed. Still, the president had been honest enough back on February 23rd, George Washington's birthday, no less. Delivering one of his fireside chats, FDR told his countrymen, and this was carried to all those on Bataan, that the Philippines had been surrounded, that it was impossible to send substantial reinforcements, and that also meant supplies. FDR continued, the other half of the truth was that the U.S. was in for a long fight, but for now, the U.S. would have to begin operations in areas other than the Philippines. That had been the decision of the Arcadia Conference, and it was now America's policy. The suffering on Bataan could not be allowed to change that. For all of the hatred the men had for MacArthur at this time, had they known what he was up to, it would only have been worse. No, the general was not living high off the hog. He had lost at least 20 pounds himself, but he wasn't regularly visiting his troops either or giving them the straight dope. No, what he was doing was crafting his image with the American people, with his downtime, and he had lots of downtime. The question then is why? MacArthur might have been trying to put his struggle and that of his men in front of the American people, hoping that they would demand action. This would not have changed reality, but at least it would have been respectable, if it was the case. Perhaps he had every intention of dying with his men, 
He was in his early 60s, and he had had an incredible career. Maybe he was hoping to go out in a blaze of glory. But what about his wife, Jean, and young Arthur? Surely he could not be so selfish as to sacrifice them on his altar. Yet he made no plans to remove them to safety. Another option, the last that comes to mind, was, in his heart of hearts, he knew it was only a matter of time before Washington pulled him out. So the paper war he was waging with Washington was to secure a plum job once he got off of the island, despite his losing the Philippines. But in a postscript moment of honesty, perhaps it was MacArthur being MacArthur, that he was simply unable to take his focus off himself and how events affected him instead of the other way around. No, the truth, again, it's best his men did not know this, was that MacArthur was writing about himself and editing what those on his staff had written about him before it was sent out. If it made him look bad or indecisive, it ended up on the dirt floor. If it made him look good, as in he was in control of the situation, it was sent out. The results of this are predictable. The American people, hungry for some good news, started calling him a hero. Streets, babies, buildings, and dances were being named after him. It's hard to imagine MacArthur not loving this, despite the situation, when he found out about them. But he was just as important to the Japanese people as well. The foreign devil making the Hohei, the Japanese soldier, suffer and die. Why? For the last bit of land on Luzon. No, he would be hung from a scaffold close to the imperial palace. Not that that would happen, as we have seen. FDR, for his own political and military reasons, had to order the general to leave Corregidor. But even his departure had to be an event. Standing on the dock on Corregidor, he had the officers gather around him to see him off. One can't help but think one well-placed bomb could have wiped out the entire command structure. But MacArthur was never one to do something without an audience. The man in front of him now was General Wainwright, his successor. The general had already given Wainwright all the details, that he was heading to Australia, that he would return with a relief force, that he did not want to go, but was being ordered to by the president himself. And a good soldier always follows orders. Yet he proceeded to go over all of this again for his audience. That had been ordered to attend. Then, according to Sid Huff, his personal assistant, the general had his wife and son get on board their respective torpedo boat. As MacArthur was about to follow them, he stopped, turned around, and looked at the height on Corregidor. His gaze was fixed. It always was, but now it was fixed and gaunt. On the height, the American guns were firing on the enemy, threatening his men along the line that he was about to leave. Stepping away from his family, he re-approached Wainwright and the officers around him. He simply said, I shall return. 